0: west mount let's just continue that refrain and that cry that be ruler of all as we take god's word and look to continue our worship through the study of it romans chapter 2 that's where we are at if you're visiting with us as always another warm welcome to you it is good that you are with us this morning If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you. The rack's there. You can take one of those, follow with us Romans chapter 2. That is where we're at. We long for security. We long for it. Security is a human desire that's sought after in almost every major arena of life. Just think with me as we begin this morning. We crave security. We want job security, hence, a good job evaluation. Have you had one of those? You go in, you get a good job evaluation, and it makes you feel better, doesn't it? You think, I can hang on to this job for a bit. We want financial security. Either money socked under the mattress or portfolio diversity. We want financial security. We crave it. We want relational security. That is why we get nervous, why we're jealous, and why we fret. We want relational security. We want health security, and so we put a very high premium, especially in the modern West, on preventative medicine because we want health security. And we want security in our surroundings, and we certainly know this lately. That's why we can feel a little unsettled to hear that accidentally missiles hit Poland, but we can feel very unsettled to hear that missiles can reach any point in North America. Humanity wants to be secure. They want to be secure, and we work very hard, listen, to feel that way. We work very hard so that we can feel secure. However, those efforts are ultimately vain attempts. I feel I hardly need to say that this morning. There's really and truly, in all those domains just mentioned, and more, we could mention more, and you know this, Westmount, there really is no true, real security in any of those things, is there? There's none. Listen, we can build bunkers figuratively and literally to protect ourselves. And the moment we drive the final nail into the bunker, we can collapse dead of a heart attack. Right? Such is the insecurity of security. To be very precise this morning, such is the insecurity of our security. Our false sense of it. This morning, as we consider false security, we consider security as it relates to the most important domain of all, the one that I would submit to you, we neglect. And that is, speaking of all of humanity, our soul. What of the security of your soul? That is, the false sense, the false sense that my soul will be okay. My soul is going to be just right in the judgment and the life to come. Do you know that security? It barely needs mentioning that such false security would be the deadliest form. The false sense as you live this life, again, that I'm going to be all right after I die. My soul is going to be just fine. And then only to die and realize after you die and your eyes awake after death and realize I was wrong. I was wrong. This is the warning Christ gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to our Savior shatter the sense of security for many, falsely living with assurance. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And here it is, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That warning from Christ comes after an extended teaching, three chapters full, Designed, the Sermon on the Mount, designed to shatter, to shatter one's sense of not only self-righteousness, but security. That's the design. And to bring presumptuous men and women, listen, to their knees. To crush the sense that they're going to be okay. Lowly, right? The lowly are the ones blessed. Blessed. The standard of life and liberty and living is so much higher than you thought. In fact, you can't comprehend it. Matthew five forty eight. what does he say in that verse? The beginning, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If it hasn't shattered one sense of security, eternally it must do that. Jesus shattering false assurance, and not just here, but the false assurance that typified Jesus' ministry, that's all of the missiles aligned at Jesus, right? This is what he was doing to dismantle them. You think you're assured when you launch that attack, but you're not. Our Lord constantly confronted with a group that felt very, very secure the Jews particularly the Jewish leadership, most often, again, represented by the scribes and Pharisees who paraded their security. You know these vignettes in the Gospels, don't you? They paraded their security. Secure rituals, secure clothing, secure law, recitation, secure lineage. And Jesus time and time again exposed the insecurity of their security. Well, false assurance did not go away after Jesus' ascension. Jesus didn't come and then ascend, and you know what? Humanity figured it out. No. It continued to be a plague on the early church as well. An early church, by the way, predominantly made up of Jews. Remember, flowing out of Jerusalem and Pentecost, Jews going out, many saved, and listen, many were truly secure, no doubt. But many others, not so, and listen, but they were feeling so, and then they were talking so, as if they were so secure. And so that false security would have migrated to Rome, one of the biggest cities of the day. Yes, Rome would have contained not only a population of Jews, but an even stronger population of Jewish sentiment. Jews steeped in their false assurance, settling and influencing others in a bustling city like Rome. A spiritually vibrant, active city with a fledgling, real Christian church. This is the context. And so this is the scene in which Paul writes this letter and the group that's in view now. All humanity and their default unrighteousness has been our study in chapter 1. All mankind, truth suppressors, remember, by nature. From the womb, no exceptions. Then, as we looked at last week, a subset of that group, remember, the moralists. A group not so shameless, at least outwardly, but presentable and religious. The moralists, the humanity group that talks righteousness but fails to execute it. Thus, both groups, the shameless pagan and the moral talker, both equally under judgment. Just like a good number of Jews who, unlike their human moral neighbors, felt they had much to feel very secure in. And this just comes out when you read your Bible. They felt they had so much to be secure in. They were, after all, God's chosen people. They were, by the way, the ones that God gave law to, to them specifically. And don't you know, they're the ones who had God's special promises. And on we could go. Lots of felt security. But as Jesus taught throughout his teaching on earth, and as Paul will demonstrate in this portion of the letter to Rome... That Jewish security, that feeling that their spiritual eternal destiny would be okay, was very, very insecure, it turns out. Again, the insecurity of security, a potent reality for such Jew. As such, here in Romans, we'll see five domains, five of them, that give the Jew a false sense of security. And thereby, five domains that continue to threaten our sense of security today. Nothing has changed. We don't need to be a Jew to have massive implications flowing at us from this text. Let us read now our passage this morning and then dive right in. Let's pick it up. We left off in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man from god let's pray father in heaven would you take these words that we have just considered open our eyes so that we can behold them and the wonderful things that they do proclaim to us lord as we consider your gospel we pray father that we would not only see them but understand them let them sink deep and go out and live in light of them oh god we pray in christ's name amen All right, let us consider the first field that falsely assures us, and it's our first point this morning, hearing, hearing, you'll find that in verses 12 and 13, hearing, the reality of an impartial God in judgment, as we set the table here, look at verse 11 again, for God shows no partiality, the reality of such an impartial God is where we left off last week. And so there's implications flowing out of that reality that God is impartial in judgment. Thus, it still resonates. That's the theme carrying us into verses 12 and 13. And this is a crucial bridge to Paul's point, his next point. Why? Because as Paul turns to the Jew and to the great tool of the Jew, he's going to have ears prick up when he mentions this word, the law, the law. The law, from a Jewish perspective, was what was given directly by God. We mentioned this already briefly off the top. It was given directly by God to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation on Mount Sinai. You remember, still I pray it hasn't all been forgotten. Our study in Exodus, right? That was the deliverance of the law. Do you remember? It was given to that holy nation, the people set apart to them. Thus, to the Jew, the law was an emblem the law was what it meant to be a jew to be given law right to know it to have it for the jew then the law was the great divide the jews had law no one else did they had it they were given it they heard it they owned it as such to the faithless jew to the faithless jew the law was the means to salvation and eternal security And yet Paul here cuts through this divide, cuts through that understanding, and flattens the playing field. Look what he does. The law, by the way, mentioned for the first time here in Romans, and it's going to be a repeated theme. This is just the beginning of Paul's consideration of law. So there's more ahead. We can't possibly expound all the things in law, but we'll pick it up as Paul does. Paul returns to the law. And he's going to launch off law, like he does here today, to teach about the gospel of God. And here in chapter 2, what is being taught, or we could say corrected, is this. The sense of Jewish security, here specifically that sense that's placed in the law. Let's grab that. There's a, a sense of security there for them. Now, we, we must listen now to how Paul shatters this sense of law security. Let's read verse 12 again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, lots there that we could comment on, but we want to keep the main thing the main thing. He says, first, judgment still takes place under the law you can imagine jewish heads nodding saying yes yes of course but we have to note what he's saying that it is judgment right that takes place under the law the faithless jew would have likely sought refuge in their relationship to the law remember that so as they're nodding they say yes that's my place of refuge The law, it's mine indeed, and judgment takes place under it. Again, law was there as they heard it, but look now, look now. Paul makes clear, law relationship, law knowledge, law hearing does not justify you. Verse 13. You see what he says? It is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, made right before him, but who? Doers of the law who will be justified. That is. Future on that day. Now, you could say a few things there. We've covered at least one of them the works and their relationship to justification last week. We also have to keep in mind that there'd be some Jews still nodding their heads, saying, Indeed, to this. And we had to track with Paul's argument. But for now, we carry on because we want to zero in on the point that God's word is presenting here. Here is the point to the Jew. There is no security in merely hearing the law. By hearing, we would say, possessing it or being people of it. This is the point of the text. Much more we could say about hearing and doing, but covered that last week. But the point here is, it's not just hearing the law, Jew. We start with the obvious. In Exodus, and we know this, again, we need to state the obvious as we gain understanding. We didn't see eternal security delivered to the nation of Israel because they heard it. God didn't say, okay, now you have it, now you're set. The point of law was given for what? So they would go and do it, live it, and be a beacon to the nations. No eternal security is given just upon hearing the law. It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? But we're getting to the epicenter of this text. Listen, to the Jew, there is no security in hearing the law, no matter if it's from youth, no matter if you've memorized the entire Torah. There's no security in that. To the Jew, there's no security in being able to recite it all, to know all the inner workings of the different passages and so on. There's no security in that. Yet the Jew came to a point of thinking so, and this thought evolved and it grew, Imagine, think with me, just the hearing law in synagogue. Just get thee to synagogue and hear law. Then just keep hearing it. And thus we are secure. And one imagines an ancient Jewish internal mantra to hear is to be safe. To hear is to be safe. Now, church, upon hearing that, true of the Jew, I pray you're already connecting the dot. Church, this is not just a Jewish security threat, is it? No, it continues to plague the people of God today. The sense of inner security that feels this, I just need to hear it. I just need to hear the law. I just need to hear God's word preached and talk about and sung. That's the unsaid feeling. This is where we need to tease our hearts right. I just need to put something on and I need to hear it. And it's like a balm and a pacifier. I just need to hear it. Be here Sunday to hear. Listen to the special podcast or the spiritual podcast or the internet message. Hear the lawful words sung. Give ear to a variety of hearing. In fact, often we just want to soak ourselves in it and listen to me. Nothing wrong in and of those cells. In fact, much of that is good. However... There is a problem when it is just hearing. You know, many of us here in this room are thrilled with the theological resurgence that's happening in some quarters, right? Reformed theology and so on. It's lovely. But you know, I fear, and I know I'm not the only one, it has a fear that this is growing into an academic exercise and a very social media-driven thing. Who are you following on social media? What articles are you reading? Whose podcast? Whose blog? What are you looking to Lots of hearing and no doing. And this is the point here. There's no security in just hearing and making sure you have all these outputs. Security doesn't come in managing your feed on social media. The insecurity of security that feels, and again, unsaid, that their hearing is enough. We would say, well, of course not. We don't. But listen, does your life reflect that? Do you have more inputs than outputs? No one is okay after death because they gave some hearing or a lot of hearing to God's word from time to time. No one is going to be okay because they said, I was in church every Sunday and I really looked most of my internet time was just looking up God's stuff. No one is okay because they filled the house with music to fill the dead space. We can place our security in these things. And listen, if you do, you are gravely mistaken. Gravely mistaken. If you hear anything, hear this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Hear it, beloved. Hear it. There is no security in hearing. That is one false sense we see here. Next conscience verses 14 to 16 now the Jewish protest at this point goes something like this but the Gentiles have no law how could they even know what to do we're the ones with the law how could they even know sure Paul you're flattening things but how would they even know indeed they were not given a formal cut of law like Israel at a point in time every Gentile sits under that reality. Yet, that does not mean they have no sense of law or right and wrong at all. Paul continues in verse 14. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Gentiles, like all of mankind, were created in whose image? God's, yes. And as such, it should not surprise that in that image of God, embedded in it, is a real sense of good and evil, right and wrong, a sense, yes, of law. Created in God's image, it shouldn't surprise. And here is how, look at verse 14, the Gentiles are a law to themselves. Look at it. When they do law works, they demonstrate that there is a higher standard, a transcendent right and wrong. They live in it. Their actions reveal that not only is there a greater law in view, but they abide in it. They keep doing it. Hence, civilized society. And the mechanism with the ability to think about right and wrong, the moral apparatus residing in each human person at creation to do this, is called conscience. Thus, you see conscience, look in verse 15, the internal moral compass. Now, all humanity has conscience, Jew and Gentile alike. However, due to the fall, original sin, our internal moral mechanisms and systems are broken, We know this, Westmount. We know this. However, we are broken totally, meaning every fabric of our being, including conscience, has brokenness in it, but we're not broken utterly, like completely and utterly, like every possible way, right, that we do bad all the time. No, we know that that's not true. Hence, it does not mean we have absolutely zero moral sense at all. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, of course, right? And you have to know and recognize that in some form to suppress it. We recognize morality in some sense. Listen, culture and experience demonstrate this. We need to mention this because this is a very common sociological teaching from the ivory tower. It is not true that morality is just simply an accepted society standard. That morality, what we feel is moral, is just because we at this time said, oh, well, you know what? Genocide's not a good thing. Who's on board with that? No. We have sensibilities that recognize it's wrong for every time. Hence, humanity always has this flicker as to what's right and wrong. But listen, more authoritative than experience is what the Bible teaches us here. And it's this, that even Gentiles, those not given the law, do what the law requires by nature, verse 14. You see that? Even Gentiles do law work. Now, that does not mean we're naturally lawful people, Romans 5, which we'll get to, is going to show us that clearly, but it instead means we abide by law naturally, that's the key difference there. Say it another way, this is not referring to the nature of our being, but the nature of our actions. Listen, savage tribes exist, yes, and that's well documented, cannibalism and so on, but more so civilized society. Right? And it is in those civilized behaviors and actions that are often, so often self preserving, that humanity demonstrates a sense of right and wrong. And I believe we get this. And the working of right and wrong, the law work, comes from the heart. Verse 15, look at it. Now, So you say that, and maybe some of you are thinking, ah, I've seen that language before, law and heart. Now, we should not confuse this with the new covenant reality of the law written on the hearts of the faithful Jew. You say, well, that sounds the same. This is not to be confused with the law written on the hearts of the faithful Jew, and hence the grafted in Gentile, for all those that are products of the new covenant. No, that is, as Jeremiah 31, 33 says, the law written on the heart. It does sound similar, beloved, yes, but this is where we must listen carefully. Paul is saying something different than Jeremiah here. What's he saying? Look at verse 15 again. God's word says the behaving Gentile shows that the work of the law, not the law itself, the work of the law, very different, is written on their heart. Do you see that? This is the work of the law, not the actual law, and this begins to make sense. In other words, what is written on the heart is not the law itself, like it rebirth, The law of God. But what is written on the heart at natural birth is a sense of the law's work. Big difference. And that is how the Gentiles' conscience, look more, bears witness against them. It's the work of the law on their heart. That's why the Gentile is eternally confused, conflicting thoughts and accusations. They know deep down there's a higher moral law. They know that they should be doing that, the good, in one sense. But their very nature doesn't sync up, right? This is the Gentile problem. Deep down, they know there's a transcendent rightness. But every other fabric of their being, and all fabrics really, is working in the other direction. But they recognize a certain sensibility of law work, don't they? They do law work naturally, if nothing else, for survival, to fit in, to conform. But they are not naturally lawful because their soul is broken. That's not who they are. It's what they do, but it's not who they are. And here it is, and we need to be clear when we think of the new covenant, their motives and their engine is wrong. And church as Gentiles, that should alert us to a very major problem here. Maybe you've caught it already. This is a significant problem, isn't it? It reveals that just because we do lawful things does not mean we're lawful, does it? Just because we do lawful things, we can trick not only other people, we can trick ourselves. Just because we do law doesn't mean we are lawful. The works of the law may appease our conscience in moments, but they do not appease the wrath of God on that day of judgment. On that day, security is not found in someone that knew right from wrong. Far from it. God does not excuse us based on our moral knowledge. This one's fine because he knows right from wrong. We say that again, we must press this. I wonder how many have their assurance rooted like this for Judgment Day. The false sense of security that at least I'm civilized, I'm decent. I mean, I wake up and I read the news, and I'm not them right? I'm civilized and I'm decent. Sure, I'm not perfect, but God knows that. I'm just a decent human being. No, friend. That's what your natural conscience may be telling you, but there's no security in it. Conscience hints, but it does not save, not at all. God, not conscience, will excuse based on moral perfection. Again, Matthew five forty-eight: be perfect. Be perfect. And by the way, I do need to note this with conscience. First Timothy 4 says it can be an even graver problem with your conscience. It can be seared. You ever heard people walk around and say, my conscience is clear? Have you heard that? And you see them doing something wrong. You know that it's morally wrong. And what do they tell you? Big, bright-eyed face. My conscience is clear. As if that's the ticket. Well, they can be gravely wrong with that too. Our conscience can be impaired. First Timothy 4 says it can be seared. Anyway, much more we could say about that. Important warning for us. Insecurity of hearing, conscience next, heritage. Look at verse 17, heritage. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Here is where Paul really gets at it. Now he's named them. He calls out the Jew directly. Do you see that? And for the Jew, being called a Jew, the name itself was the Jew's great heritage. Right? This was the living family tree that they were very proud of. The name Jew derived from the name Judah. The remnant great surviving tribe of the south. The region of Judah, which was Judea. This is where Jew comes from. The title came to be used of the Israel people themselves. As such, the name was their identity. I am a Jew. And the Jews clung to their identity like humans do, right? We love identity. We need it, don't we? We want to be identified some way. And the Jew, of course, no different, but amplified in some ways, as we see in the Bible, the Jews clung to their identity, so much so they took pride in it. Look at verse 17. This is what comes out of this verse. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, there it is, we looked at that, and boast in God. Only the Jew can boast in God, they might say. Jewish identity was not just pride and identity then, it was security. They boasted in God. Micah 3.11 calls attention to this presumption, presenting a picture of their false leaning. Micah 3.11 says, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. That's what Micah 3.11 says. In other words, we are Jews. And if you were to look at all of the chapter in Micah 3, you'd see in the context there, boasts of being from Jacob of Israel, from Jerusalem to Zion, Jewish pride. But as Micah's prophecy attacked Jewish presumption, so too Paul here. You call yourself a Jew. Look at verse 17. You call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You boast in God. But, and we do a little fast-forward glimpse to Paul's argument, verse 23, but, after he will give many more examples, but, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He shatters it right there said more bluntly, Jew, there's no security in your heritage, but more, and if we look at the whole context of this argument here, and let's again keep it in view, but more, Jew or not, you still break God's law, and whether you're a Jew or a Gentile and you break God's law, you must be judged. That's the continued flattening. They would have clung to heritage. Remember, I'm a Jew, and I feel secure, and Again, Westmount, the implication is ripe for us. What of you today? What of your heritage today? Do you find security in your heritage? I mean, in any way. Are you feeling okay because you're from a Christian home? Do you feel secure knowing you were brought up to know God's law? And maybe internally you can boast in him because you know God's law. Or maybe, maybe there's security in the fact that you bear the title Christian. That's your title. You put it on surveys. You might tell the odd person in introductions, I am a Christian. Is there any sense of heritage? You associate with a church. You do spiritual things. And that's been part of your pulse. Do you find security in heritage? Listen, your grandmother's godliness does not save you, or her for that matter. Like hearing in conscience, there's no security in your heritage. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. Ezekiel 18.4 makes this clear. The soul who sins shall what? Die. You're a specter of persons, right? And heritage. You sin, you die. And we will see later in this letter. We all have sinned. We all have sinned. Next, hearing, conscience, heritage, instruction. Instruction. Paul continues in verse 18, so we keep reading. Let's follow him. And know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge in truth let us consider now all the behaviors that are itemized here under the banner of instruction let's look at them starting in verse 18 there is knowing god's will so think of this person knowing god's will and agreeing with it so here we see we've been working through this funnel with paul now you have the person like yes i know god's will i know his law and i agree i give assent yes this is the kind of person in view Then in verse 19, look at it, there's certainty in guiding the blind. So not only do they know God's will and give assent, they guide the blind, giving light to the darkened, verse 19. More, there's the privilege of teaching the whole law. And look, to the foolish and to the young, verse 20. Now I want you, Westmont, just for a moment to consider the security, such a one, in agreement with God giving light to the blind, teaching the whole law to those that need it. Consider the security that such an instructor derives from being this instructor. Can you not imagine? Well, I'm the instructor, this person. I'm the instructor. I mean, if anyone will be okay, it's the one who teaches, right? It's the one who teaches. However, I do believe, church, we recognize the danger that is lurking here. Yes, teacher, Yes, instructor. Yes, you Jew who boast in the law and know it. However, and keep that in mind, look at verse 21. That may all be true, but we continue. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, now note the picture. Do you steal? So the teacher instructs, but does the opposite. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, it doesn't matter what you teach, does it? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So much here. But here's the point, and let's keep it simple. All of those illustrations in 21 to 24 paint this one picture, and it is this, the hypocritical instructor. Do you see that? The hypocritical instructor. You teach, but you don't do. You teach, but you don't do. You preach. Do not steal. But then you go and steal. You say, don't commit adultery, but then you go and do just that. And then this one, Paul goes to one of the rarest infractions, as history tells us. You know the law says abhor pagan idols, Deuteronomy 7.26. Don't go in to those pagan sanctuaries and loot the place and take them. I know you can get money for them. I know they're precious. Maybe you're coveting them. Don't do that. And you tell people, you instruct them not to do that, and then you go and do Just that, Rob temples. As such, Paul actually, in this excoriation here in these verses, he has two prophets in mind. This is one of those famous references where Paul has a couple of prophets in mind, not just one, with his reference there in verse 24. He's thinking of Isaiah in chapter 52, and he's thinking of Ezekiel in chapter 36. And even broader than Isaiah and Ezekiel, those major prophets right, bringing warnings to God's people, Even bigger than that, you just get the sense here, Paul is thinking of the common prophetic indictment against Israel, and it is this. Your conduct, your law violations blaspheme God. That's the point. Your conduct is blaspheming God, and here it is. Among the Gentiles, you claim this, you say you're God's people, and you certainly go and you don't act like God's people. Implications are just right. Israel, God's nation, elected to be a light to the nation, a light to the Gentiles. Yet Israel may know. They know about that. Genesis 12, that all nations would be touched. Isaiah 42 and 49. They know those chapters. They know that law. They teach it. They think about aspects of the law and the reach of them as a holy nation. But before the nations, among the Gentiles, here we see they blaspheme God. How? By their conduct. Westmount, so it is today. And as we consider this text for each one of us, I want us to do this because it's important. This is not the stuff, maybe you're thinking, of hypocritical leaders of the day. This is not just hypocritical politicians or corrupt judges or officers only. In view here for sure, but that's not it. This is to the Jew. God's chosen people. God's own This is the stuff, then, listen, beloved, of hypocritical people claiming to know God, isn't it? This is people that claim to know God, to to claim to be in possession of God, to claim to know the Bible. This text says they're hypocrites. First and foremost, let's be clear and comprehensive, the leaders, the primary instructors of God's word, yes, the pastors, the elders... All manner of priest and modern shepherd accountable to this. The scandals are not even worth repeating this morning. But their abundance, the fact that you wake up every week to a new scandal in church leadership, illustrates the point, doesn't it? It illustrates the point. Like people, like priests. Yet it is also true of anyone that would claim to explain God's word. This is not just a leadership problem. This is not just the Jewish leadership. This is all Jews as such. This is not just Christian leadership. All Christians, let us look at this. I mean, it's as simple as evangelizing to your neighbor and telling him, God says you should not lie. And then after that conversation, not a few hours after, you go and do what? You lie. You can call it white. You can call it small. You can call it greater good. Whatever you want to call it, it's a lie. It's the hypocritical instruction of the parent telling their children what God says you should do, right? The parent, this is what you should do, you should do, you should do. And then they fail to do it themselves. Doesn't matter how much they joke about it. Oh, you know, I see that in my kid. No. It's hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy that is the instruction of our life. Calling out the world to submit to God's law when we don't submit to God's law ourselves. Yes, church, there's no security in such instruction. Yet we look for it there. We feel very safe there when we're the instructors, don't we? We feel safe being the ones possessing the law and instructing others. Finally, hearing, conscience, heritage, instruction, and ceremony. Let's read this final section. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. So much there. You think, wow, that's a lot to think through. In fact, you may feel like it's a bit of a a twisting sentence there, but it's all clear. Let's just work through it together closely. To close this line of thought, Paul finally turns to the Jewish badge of honor. I mean, this would be the pinnacle. The law was the umbrella, right? The canopy. This is what would have been slapped on, the Jew. This is their thing. If there was one thing that made them Jewish and covenant people, it was this. Circumcision. Instituted as a sign of the covenant in Genesis 17. This is where we see their badge of honor. This skin removal of the newborn male, the Jewish infant, a symbol of separation. Right? Removal and separation. That's what circumcision is. And as such, the circumcision ceremony rose to become the pinnacle of Jewish security. Are you circumcised? Good. And by security, we mean for the Jew in time, circumcision in time, let's be clear, this is the evolution of thought, circumcision became akin to salvation. Circumcision was the ultimate essence of law-keeping. Just make sure you do that. How pervasive this badge was and is, or we should say back then of law keeping, how pervasive it became, you just have to look at the book of Galatians, and you'll understand how pervasive this was right into the first century. Here, however, we see Paul break down this ceremony, and that is exactly what he's doing. He's breaking the ceremony down. He says, verse 25, circumcision, now let's track with him. Circumcision is only of value if what? You keep the law. One imagines the Jews saying, well, I'm being circumcised, so I am keeping the law. And one imagines God or Moses, well, there's more to the law than just the sign of the law. In fact, it's what it represents. As we continue, in other words, it's like the officer's badge. You have the officer's badge to say I'm legit. Remember, he pulls it out. It's on his vest, right? I'm legit. I'm a law keeper. To serve and protect, I have the badge. But it's only as effective as what? If that man keeps the law. Could you imagine a police officer goes around breaking the law and he keeps on holding up his badge? I'm a police officer. We would say what? No, you're not. Because of the badge. You may say it's legit. You may go down to the police station and recognize he's registered. But you'd say you're not a police officer. Why? Because you're breaking the law. I hope that makes sense. So Jew, if you break the law, your circumcision means nothing. In fact, it's like you're uncircumcised. See? Now, conversely, watch what Paul does here. Conversely, and this would have been abhorrent to the Jew, what he's about to say. Conversely, Gentile, the Gentile that keeps the law, your uncircumcision means something. And you know what it means, what Paul is going to say. One imagines that you could never get around this. The Gentile, by their deeds, their, those wicked Gentiles by their deeds, could do things that are akin to being circumcised? Yes. It sounds confusing in one sense, but really it isn't. Paul's point is that it is not about symbol and ceremony. See the Jew taking refuge in the symbol and the ceremony? At least I have this. Paul's point here... And I pray it's already been clear in the first part of Romans, and it will be, particularly when we get into Romans 6. Paul's point is it's not about symbol and ceremony. It's about what? Obedience. That's the point. It's about obedience. Obedience, by the way, that is not just an internal, yes, I know those are good things. I hear Obedience that manifests itself. And that's why in verse 27, look at it. The one who is uncircumcised but a law keeper external verification, observable fruit, could theoretically condemn the, uncircumc- or the circumcised who have their written code and break it. They could do that. Because they're showing truly their position vis-a-vis the law. If such a one existed, the uncircumcised who kept the law perfectly, if such a one existed, his practice of obedience then becomes like circumcision. You see that? Like a sign of the covenant. His behavior demonstrates it. And this is why Jewish refuge and ceremony was so deadly, because it was false security. The point wasn't that one was secure through circumcision according to the law, but the point was that one who obeyed and kept the law, all of it, thus we can start to talk about security. That's the point. We consider that with Paul's closing indictment, verse 28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Look at that. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. What we must not miss, Westmount, is that such a reality was clear even within the law itself. What Paul is referencing here is a truth that any good Jew, any good law hearer should know from their understanding of the law. The ceremony has always pointed to something more. Listen to Leviticus 26, 40-42. Listen carefully. This is in the middle of the law. But if they confess their iniquity, so are those under the law, and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, right, this is a repentance, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart, now these would be people that would be circumcised but walking in treachery, right? He says, because of their treachery, their covenant violation, their walking in an uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and so on. What's God saying in Leviticus 26? It's about what they're doing, They're already circumcised. But if they repent from their covenant violations, then I will remember. I won't think of the fact, oh, they're circumcised. I better kick this into action. No, by their repentance. What about Deuteronomy? Elijah uh, read from Deuteronomy 10. Listen to this, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Your heart, and be no longer stubborn. In In other words, there is a greater circumcision that you need. You're relying on ceremony, but you need more. And again, it was read this morning. What about Deuteronomy 30? Listen to this, verse 6. Same idea. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Again, this is to the Jew. Covenant Jew. And the heart of your offspring. So that, and why, does the Jew or anyone for that matter, need a circumcised heart? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then listen, that you may live. We want to point the Jew to a text like this and say that you may live. Living is not tied to physical circumcision. tied to having God circumcise your heart. A couple more just in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4, verse 4 again, not just in law, prophets. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of what? your deeds, Jeremiah 4.4. 4. And then Jeremiah 9, now listen to this, considering Jew and Gentile, God says, behold, the days are coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Now look what Yahweh says here. And then he says what the Jew had predicted, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised. It would be the non-Jew nations, right? And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. That's why Judah popped up in there. Because they're just like the uncircumcised, right? And this is the point. It's not about a physical ceremony, It's about an internal heart. Such was the rebuke on the ceremonial Jew, likened to the nations, the Gentile pagan nations. Yet, beloved, that is the point. Physical circumcision are not, their heart remained the same. And so it is with ceremony, the hallmark, circumcision, the hallmark of all that is external, Ceremony, as Paul drives home here, is not a place of security for the Jew. It's not a place where you want to find your refuge in ceremony. And friends, listen, you know this now. We've worked through it with each point. Ceremony is not a place of security for anyone, is it? No one. At any time. Yet how often do God's people, let alone humanity, but God's people turn to ceremony for security? I've told you before about the new young moms they just called a church and they want their new baby baptized. We talked to them, work through it. They just want the ticket. Please do the ceremony on my baby because this world is wicked. What about the young professing couple? I know of one recently in this case. Young professing couple maybe giving tokens to God. They just want to marry in a church or have a godly minister do it. So they can have a little marriage insurance there. Refuge in the ceremony. Christian, what about today? I don't want to denigrate the wonderful ordinances we have. How do you look at baptism and the Lord's table? Do you feel better because you've done them? In one sense, of course you need to, but you know what I mean. I just needed to get there and do that. Maybe hastening to those ordinances without taking care of the business that you need to. Security, beloved, it never dies in tokens, in events, in rituals. If I just have this, if I just do that, I'm going to be okay. So we could easily apply this principle to those claiming Christian identity, could we? And we could say of this, look at verse 28, we could say this to apply a transcendent Principle of God's people. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Verse 29 A Christian is one inwardly, and yes, circumcision and ceremony are matters of the heart. Friends, there's no security in ceremony. There's none. Just doing X does not bypass judgment. I pray we're clear on that this morning. So, hearing, conscience, heritage, instruction, and ceremony, see them. Such is the insecurity of security. And as we close, you might be feeling very insecure this morning. And you might rightly ask, how do I know that this is not me? Maybe you've asked that already. In fact, I pray you have. The good Christian asks that question, 2 Corinthians 13.5. How do I know this is not me? How do I know it's not me? Well, it's really simple. Very, very simple. And it comes down to this. We're going to talk a lot about judgment and final judgment. It's going to be in view, Romans 3, Romans 14. where Judgment's been in view, we'll talk about that. I want, it, I want us to think about today, the rest of your Sunday, your Monday, your week, into Christmas and so on. What of your security today? Okay? What about your secure? What is making you feel secure today? I want you to think for a moment. What is your sure footing this morning? I want you to just take a moment, and how would you answer that question? How are you feeling secure today? I don't mean on Judgment Day. I'm not talking about Judgment Day. How do you feel secured right now? What's making you feel very secure right now and into tomorrow? Feeling confident. Is it that you're here? Is it that you're here? I braved the snowstorm. I came. I'm here. I'm here. And I'm hearing. And by the way, I'll be here next week. And you got stuff going on through the week. I'll be here. I'll give a hearing. Is it that you call yourself a Christian? Is that how you feel good about today? On Lord's Day, I'm a Christian. On Lord's Day, I'm part of a local church. I'm part of Westmount Bible Chapel. That's why I feel secure. I'm not part of a, a church that doesn't teach the Bible. I'm part of Westmount, and that's why I feel secure. Is it your years of Bible study? What about your service? You're like, I served the Lord today. I feel secure in that. Is it the devotions you're going to do with your family tonight? Like, I won't miss them tonight. I'm going to do devotions tonight. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to do devotions Beloved, I ask you, what is your security today? What is it? Think long and hard about that. And it's important because this is why. If any answer you give, if your security for today, I'm not talking about judgment day for a moment, if your security today, the answer you give is anything other than Jesus Christ. If it's anything, Anything other than Jesus Christ, his work, his righteousness imputed to you for today, your union with him. Remember, we ended with that last week, that you are united with him and it's no longer you. You are dead. He is alive and you are in him. If it's anything other than that, your union with Jesus Christ, you have a security breach. And my friend, you are on sinking sand, and you will sink. You will sink, and you will fall. If your trust for today is in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ, please hear me as we leave. If Jesus Christ is not your security to get you through to the end of this day and tomorrow, then he certainly will not be your security on Judgment Day. If he's not your security today, he will not be your security tomorrow. He did not save to give free passes to Judgment Day. He gave you new life, eternal life to begin now. So if you're not trusting him to get you through the rest of this day, Be afraid of Judgment Day. Be afraid. Fittingly, we will let the Jew of Jews, and we must end with this, if there's ever one with the pedigree to comment on what we've been talking about today, not only given the inspired words, but the one who would say, if there ever was a Jew, I am it. I think we need to give him the final word, don't we? And let's let him put all of his tokens on the table, and let's see what he has to say about them. Philippians 3, verse, let's start in verse 4. Though I myself, this is Paul, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen, listen to the the roll call. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, in other words, whatever hearing, whatever conscience and law work, whatever heritage, whatever instruction, whatever ceremony, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of why? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Friend, that's it. That is the only place of security. There is none other. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks that you have revealed this truth to us. In our fallenness and self-deception, Lord, we can erect all manner of things that we want to place before you to be made right with you, but we're reminded that not only should we count them as rubbish, they are rubbish. They are rubbish against the surpassing worth of knowing Christ your Son. God, if there is anyone here that is still clinging to themselves and has a very insecure security, I pray that it would be shattered this morning. And Lord, for their sake, of course for eternal salvation, but for your glory and another worshiper. Oh God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.